0: Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast, powered by BioAnalytics, a global contract research organization specializing in large molecule bioanalysis and supporting the development and release testing of biologics across multiple industries and disease states. In today's Molecular Moments Podcast, our host, Dr. Chad Briscoe, is exploring some of the nuances in the outstanding work of guest, Dr. Jim McNally, PhD scientist now our host dr chad briscoe well i couldn't be more excited to be hosting my first episode today molecular moments is going to be an ongoing conversation with interesting people involved in all areas of drug development we're going to be talking about interesting developments in the industry our guests roles in the industry and the factors uh that have contributed to their success we'll be talking about science uh like scientists do no watering it down uh and also mentoring is a passion of mine. I'm looking forward to exploring the roles of mentors and mentoring with all of my guests. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, coworker, and bioanalytical superhero, Jim McNally. Welcome, Jim.
1: Thanks, Chad. It's good to be here. Glad to be part of the first episode.
0: Jim, can you tell me a little bit about your role at BioAngelitics?
1: Sure. Well, for the two of us, we're co-chief scientific officers. For me, uh, I come from a background of biotech and pharma. So I bring a perspective of being the customer and what I'm looking for when I'm trying to design assays to uh, be a counterpart to you brings the, uh, the industry CRO perspective to it.
0: So you had a journey, um, you know, lo- looking back from Mississippi through LSU, and you ended up in Massachusetts. So, how does a a, a southern guy uh, like you a- end up uh, in Massachusetts in a in a fantastic career in drug development?
1: Well, I guess the the funny and probably real answer for a lot of people is uh, it was the woman in my life. I met my wife in grad school. She was a Rhode Island native. We were both scientists. So we needed to find a place where we could both postdoc and find job opportunities. And Boston was a great area. It got us back closer to her family and uh, for me to be in a part of the country that I had never seen before.
0: Uh, it's interesting, Jim. Actually, I could tell a similar story about how I ended up in this part of the country. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh, also the, the woman in my life. So you ultimately left the, the pharma research and joined a CRO, uh, which is actually becoming a more common career path uh, these days. So what what made you uh, decide to take that turn?
1: For starters, I've actually, inside of pharma companies, kind of run a small CRO. Uh, in the time that I was at Pfizer, five years of building a bioanalytical group under Boris Gorovitz's team, and we really served that entire portfolio and ran assay development and validation for the Pfizer portfolio.
0: So Jim, you ultimately left a uh, great 20 plus year career in pharma research and development to join a CRO BioAgeLytics. So wh- what drove you to, to uh, take that career turn?
1: A couple of things, I think. For me, uh, I had gone from relatively large companies into progressively smaller companies. So I was working on fewer and fewer projects. Uh, and after having the experience of working on such a large portfolio, Getting an opportunity to work on different drug types, different disease types was really important to me. Uh, and I was very familiar with the BioAgilytics team, having worked with them in the past as a sponsor, and really? wanted to be part of that team.
0: So I want to step back again to your academic career. So you you're an immunologist. We sometimes joke I'm a chemist. Uh, so uh, so what led you down that path? Why did you pick immunology? It's a, it's certainly a fascinating uh, subject space.
1: You know, when I was in undergraduate, I took an immunology course as part of my biological sciences uh, requirement core courses. Aced every test. Really enjoyed the professor. I was fascinated by the complexity of the topic and it was so new and such a young space that there was so much to work in. It was an amazing opportunity to learn. So
0: I I took one immunology course in graduate school in the nineties. And you know, I know the field has changed a lot, but could you give me a some perspective on where immunology has come in, in the 25 years or so that uh, since you first took up the, the profession?
1: Yeah, I think when I first started, it felt very straightforward, even though it was fairly complex even at that point. Uh, Our understanding of the different cell types and molecules that were involved was uh, interesting, it was complex, but has become even more complex because of some of the tools that we've developed for measuring it so we can really fine tune our understanding of individual cell populations, the proteins they're producing, And how much of a relationship they have with the antigens and infections that they encounter. It's such an up and down, balanced uh, part of our body that uh, you never fully understand all the pieces that are going on, which means you're always learning something new. So
0: I'm I'm a trained analytical chemist. So uh, moving into a field like bioanalysis seems like a natural, right? Using instruments, measurement, and things like that. But uh, going from an immunologist to to a bioanalyst who's uh, spending their time uh, measuring uh, measuring the quantities and uh, and things uh, related immunology. How did that transition happen for you?
1: I think it was accidental in some respects. My first job in industry after I left academics was in a small company of about 30 or 40 people. I was the immunologist in the building and responsible for developing assays for everything from discovery to lot release to bioanalysis for clinical testing. Uh, if you put that hand in hand with the Sheer explosion of biotherapeutics and the need to understand immunology around that. Uh, it became an interesting on-ramp into industry, and then moving into a career of trying to understand what happens when we put these crazy proteins into people, and how our bodies and immune systems respond to them.
0: Jim, you have five or six talks coming up in the next month or so that we had talked about. It's uh, it's quite a lineup. Uh, I'm. Really excited about the talk at FarmSci360, you're hosting a roundtable. Uh, you told me there's a lot of material to talk about, uh, particularly in your, your current area of emphasis, which is uh, which is gene therapy. Maybe highlight a little bit of what you're gonna talk about in, in your APS talk and some of the other areas that are of general interest. Yeah,
1: sure. So uh, gene therapy in and of itself is a pretty exciting field, but the bioanalysis for gene therapy I think is new and exciting to people. Uh, there are a lot of areas there where we're developing assays that haven't been used previously for bioanalysis, so there aren't a lot of regulations. And I think that this is an amazing opportunity to help craft the regulations around what those assays look like and what they, uh, what they should be capable of delivering from a data set. Uh, I've feel like when I entered the field of bioanalysis, so many of the rules had already been set in place for pharmacokinetic assays and immunogenicity assays. But here in the gene therapy space, we've got a chance to be at the front and set those rules in a way that's meaningful and biologically relevant to both the patient population and the people that are trying to analyze the data on clinical trials.
0: Can you uh, talk about in the in the gene therapy space? It, it's not easy, right? You're you're literally editing genes and hoping to see those genes proliferate throughout the body. Talk about some of the challenges and pitfalls uh, in gene therapy.
1: Well, I think uh, delivery is a big thing, as you mentioned. There are a lot of uh, systemic diseases where trying to deliver a particular gene, or or in the case where you're editing genes hitting all the different cell types, all the different tissues that are involved is a big challenge uh, when you put that hand in hand with uh, the ability to dose people multiple times with gene therapy uh, and get it to these different tissues. You get a very complex relationship between that first delivery, how the patient's immune system responds to it, and then your ability to go back in and perhaps hit other tissues in the body or redose to get to certain levels as opposed to just, uh, you know, I'll take another pill tomorrow and keep doing it until I reach the right drug levels systemically with other uh, more small molecule oriented drugs.
0: So typically we see gene therapy treatments um, most prevalent in oncology and, and rare diseases. Can you explain for the audience why that is?
1: Well, I think in rare disease, uh, one of the key elements is that you're typically trying to replace a missing or uh, protein that's simply not functioning the way it's supposed to and delivering a functioning protein back to that patient. Uh, So gene therapy is perfectly suited for that. Instead of giving them a drug over and over, you deliver a gene therapy, it expresses that protein the proper way and hopefully in the proper tissue. And it's a one and done type of treatment that for the foreseeable future, that patient is going to have a functioning protein that they've been missing and restore whatever missing function that they've, they've lost.
0: And what's it gonna take to get gene therapy into other therapeutic areas, uh, whether it's CNS or immunology or in other spaces? Uh, I think that's a more complex challenge, right?
1: Right. Yeah, I think so. I think for starters, just more experience in the gene therapy space, understanding that they're safe to use, uh, that they're functional, that they actually achieve the stated goal. Uh, And then I think you'll see more movement towards areas in the CNS where Uh, Maybe the delivery is a little more tricky, but the risk reward benefit is far higher in those situations that you can restore a lost function in a tissue that's very hard to reach through other therapeutic methods.
0: So, Jim, I know uh, comic books and superhero movies and things like that are are a passion of yours. It's a shared passion, right? And one of the things we've joked about a little bit is, uh, you know, talking about gene therapy. So uh, could could gene therapy be
1: used to create superheroes? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I hope not. Uh, One, because they're far more entertaining on the page and on the movie screen than I think they would be in real life. Uh, Kind of hard to imagine people with that level of ability and the amount of restraint that they would need in real life to, to use it properly, you know, use their powers for good instead of evil, right? Uh, <laughs> ideally, that's what we're doing in the, in the biotherapeutic space is it's all for the patients, it's all to help uh, people that are suffering from horrible diseases. But I don't know if someone with that type of power level could be trusted in the real world.
0: So, Jim, uh, over the past year that I've come to know you, uh, certainly gene therapy is where a lot of your emphasis, a lot of your time has been. But I get the impression that uh, immunogenicity, maybe more generally, of course, it's still an important part of the gene therapy uh, treatments, but uh, the the study of immunogenicity in general is is a passion of yours. Can you talk a little bit about that? Am I right in, in that?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the, the hooks that have, you know, have really kept me interested in uh, the area of bioanalysis. I think there's a lot of data that's generated in the immunogenicity space, but honestly, we don't always know what it means and how it relates to the efficacy of the drugs. Uh, which means there's a lot to learn. And for someone like myself, that's what I'm here for. Aside from just you know trying to, to do good, uh, it's also this curiosity around, is this even meaningful? You know, are we measuring something that has some effect? And, and how does it help us design the next round of drugs as part of the, the second, third, fourth generation of all these things we're doing?
0: So that's that's great. I, I I continue to learn from you every day when we have conversations about this stuff, and I really appreciate it. I, so we we talked about you've uh, over twenty years in in drug development, number of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, one of the disadvantages, if you will, of my career in in a CRO is that I don't really see these drugs to market. Right, I, I work on a part of the program, but could you? Highlight for me maybe a highlight of that pharmaceutical career, maybe a specific drug that you worked on that now um, is out on the market that's helping you know helping people treating treating patients.
1: Yeah, I think a couple of examples where uh, in the gene therapy space I saw uh, you know an IND filed for a particular program that was pretty exciting and moving forward uh, into hemophilia. Uh, something that I was very proud of getting an opportunity to work on, one, because it was my first experience as a program lead. So really looking at the entire drug development process, I was given the opportunity to lead that program. It was my first time. Uh, I luckily had a great team around me, a lot of people that I learned from, but take particular pride in that program. And then I think other experiences earlier in my career where there were Uh, really complex problems that needed to be solved that were holding a program back from moving forward. I think a lot of times bioanalytical scientists find themselves in a space where they're trying to solve something before it crashes a program. Those types of investigations and problem solving, uh, that's the fun stuff to me. Uh, It it doesn't feel like it when you're in the middle of it, but when you can say, I answered the questions at the end and, and either kept or sometimes killed a program as a result of it, uh, you know, that's that's the value that I think I bring to it and what I really enjoy a lot about what I do.
0: Yeah, I think that's ultimately uh, what drives a lot of us to science or pulls a lot of us into science is asking questions, asking unknown questions, and then and then seeking out the answers uh, to those questions. So uh, appreciate your insights on that. So Jim, uh, you're a leader in a lot of industry discussion groups. We talked about immunogenicity. That's uh, something where you play a big role in, in leading some discussion groups through AAPS and other organizations. Can you talk about some of your involvement in that and why that's so important uh, for you to take your valuable time to, uh, to that effort?
1: Sure. I I think one of the big parts of it for me, and and this comes back to what I said about bioanalysis for gene therapy, we have this opportunity to help set the guidelines in a meaningful way that have biological relevance to, to what it is that we do and the data that we generate. And I think being part of these industry groups, you get a chance to influence that and say, this is what we're seeing. This is adding value to a program. This effort that we put into validating an assay adds value to a program, but maybe in this other category it's not. Uh, so sharing those experiences with my colleagues in the industry is a big part of it, I think.
0: And another aspect of that is the the globalization of regulations um, has become a, an important part of drug development. So. What's been your involvement in, in some of that globalization efforts and how is that going to impact pharmaceutical development in the future?
1: Well, I've been part of an ICH group previously, uh working with regulators around the globe, trying to set guidelines around gene therapy biodistribution studies, an ongoing effort that it's continuing now. Uh, I think in a lot of cases, as we move towards rare disease and need to pull patient populations around the globe simply to find enough of them for clinical trials. There's such an impact uh, in the different regions that getting everyone on board with the same plan, eliminating rework, additional studies, and getting these clinical designs and non-clinical designs as focused as possible really benefits all of us in industry and ultimately the patient population. The faster we can, get to trial with this work, the sooner we learn whether it's benefiting the patients.
0: So Jim, mentoring is a big part of my passion. I feel like you share that same passion. It's something that I want to talk about um, in, in each of these podcast episodes. Um, and so I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, some of your mentors uh, early in your career and, and maybe even now being somebody who's a little bit further along in your career and also um, your passion for mentoring in general.
1: Sure. I'm a huge believer in mentoring. I'm acutely aware of the fact that if it weren't for people early in my career, I wouldn't be where I am. And then part of my job is to help return the favor and develop people so that they can move into the next level of their career too. I think there are some very sort of self-serving parts of that. If I develop people on my team, it frees me up to grow and do the additional things that I wanna do. Uh, It builds trust with your team that you, uh, have expectations for them, that you're going to help them reach those goals, and then you're going to cut them loose and let them do what they need to do so that they can grow and, and learn on their own also. Uh, I've mentioned a couple of times already my experience at Pfizer. Uh, I, the five years that I spent learning from from Boris Gorovitz uh, were just an amazing opportunity. I, I almost think of it like it was my second postdoc in both circumstances I had mentors that were teaching me not just how to get the job done but how to think and how as you mentioned you know the job our job is to ask questions I think a lot of what they did was help me figure out what are the right questions to ask And there's a thousand things that you can ask most days about the things that we do but how can you drill down to the important questions so that you can stay focused and move forward to the next series of questions to advance a program incredibly important and i simply want to share that with other people i mean i feel like i've gotten to where i am because of my mentors and it's it's simply my responsibility to to return that to to the next generation.
0: Oh, that's great! I think probably uh, people that aren't in the scientific field don't understand the value of the mentor and the relationship. A lot of times, I see it like professional sports, right? We're both uh, we're both passionate uh, NFL football fans, and I think of somebody like Bill Belichick. And you look across at the NFL football landscape, and it seems like half the coaches at some point or another. Right. Uh, Bill Belichick, and then you mentioned somebody like Boris Gorvitz on the scientific side. You you might say something similar. He's mentored uh, so so many people in the industry. That's pretty cool, right?
1: Yeah, it's 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 funny you mention it. There there are a lot of similarities there between Belichick <laughs> and Gorvitz. I, I can't say that I've ever drawn that connection before, but um, you know, amazingly direct. Uh, wickedly funny when they're maybe not on camera or off on the sideline and and a pretty powerful coaching tree that's come out of it right i mean the number of people that are part of the team that we had at Pfizer that have moved on to their second and third jobs since then and have taken on leadership roles mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it's amazing so um yeah, it's a, it's a pretty strange parallel. I hope he understands the humor of that if he gets a chance to listen to this. Have you ever seen Boris wear a hoodie? I have not. No, I haven't, <laughs> especially not the, not the sleeveless cutoff version of it. That's for sure. I pay money for it, though. That's for sure.
0: So, Jim, another topic you and I talk about a lot is families. Uh, we, we mentioned sports. Uh, I, I think those passions that you have at home play into your passion as a scientist. Um, do you want to take a minute and, you know, share a little bit about how those uh, pieces might be connected in your life?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, the element of, of being married to another scientist, we were literally... Grad students in the labs next to each other. I was a T cell immunologist. She was a B cell immunologist. Uh, So we spent a lot of time uh, talking about things. When we work around the house, we use scientific terms. You know, we're not putting away leftovers. We're aliquoting the leftovers. Things along those lines. You know, I. For me, I've had a very fortunate sort of personal life getting to this point. Healthy family. But about four or five years ago, my son was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It was my first experience, one with an immediate family member suffering Mm -hmm. from something. Um, The first person in my family that ever received a biotherapeutic as part of their treatment. Uh, I went from being a bioanalytical scientist, which was kind of hard to turn off, but uh, the father of a patient and listening to uh, doctors talking about his anti-drug antibody levels against his Remicade to make sure that they weren't getting too high and neutralizing the effect of the drug that he was receiving every eight weeks, seeing the benefit of a biotherapeutic and watching my son put weight back on, move back into a more normal life and being an active athlete, and then making that trip into an infusion center every eight weeks and watching them hook him up and do all the things that they do. I will say that typically a couple of days after each one of those trips to to Children's Hospital in Boston, uh, they publish on the patient portal the data that's been collected from his samples. And I look at it as one part father and one part bioanalytical scientist looking to see how his numbers are and um, everything that's being maintained there. completely different perspective about what I do now and um, how important the quality of the data that we generate is to real people's lives out there.
0: Yeah. Wow. Jim, thanks for sharing that. It's a personal uh, bit and I appreciate it. And it really does bring it home for us. So um, I'm going to transition to something a little bit lighter now. Uh, <laughs>
1: well, you know, yeah. it, it is light. I, it it hasn't always been, Yeah, you know, yeah, and it been. wasn't uh, in the early days. But now it is a success story. And it is something that I look at and say, you know, thank goodness that I get an opportunity to be part of this industry and do something like that for someone else. And I'm thankful for the people that, did it for me before we got here. You know, it's, uh, it is part of why I'm uh, acutely aware of every scientist that I help and train as part of all of this. They're going to be doing something like this for someone else.
0: That's, that's fantastic, Jim. So, so Jim, what's your favorite comic book? We referenced (laughs) your your passion earlier. Uh, What's Um, your favorite comic book and why?
1: Yeah, so, so at the most basic level, I'm a DC guy, not a Marvel guy. Uh, from the comic book standpoint obviously the movies far and away the, the whole marvel universe is just something you can't turn away from it's it's been an amazing thing you know I as a kid grew up reading about this stuff and to actually see it come to life on the screen I, honestly I, I'm just amazed I, I never thought these things would happen. I'm a huge fan, both from a science fiction standpoint and from a comic standpoint around time travel. So anything that's involved there, that's always a hook for me. I I don't know whether it's just because I want to change things that I've done in my life or be able to go back and rethink and edit uh, things that I've done. But uh, that's a fascination for me, too. But, uh, you know, I'm a a Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman guy. It's It's the basics for me
0: that's that's fantastic Jim and I think you knew that this last topic was going to come up at some point but it's known to those of us that have been on maybe 150 or 200 zoom calls that you have a passion for celery so I I gotta know the celery is there you're showing me the celery so uh, what is it about the celery Jim
1: So one of the great things, right, about our new sort of remote environment is that I am constantly on calls. I do not really get a chance to leave the basement office. Once you get up and get on a call, it just doesn't stop and you just go back to back to back. So the opportunity to sit down and eat is complicated. Um, I also tend to just munch throughout the day anyway. So just having something at the ready that I can take a quick bite of and and not immediately grab, you know, a Snickers bar or something is an advantage. And I've actually liked celery since I was a kid. I don't know why. I don't know when it was the first time. But, um, you know, it, it's one of my favorite snacks. At some point, I'll probably tire of it. It'll become carrots or it'll become you know, snap peas or beans. I, I go through these phases with vegetables, but, um, you know, it's, I don't know.
0: Snap peas are good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it It is kind of funny, though, because it has become this sort of signature thing other than the, the I Spy game that's played with my uh, shelves and boxes that are behind me on both Zoom calls. Everyone trying to figure out what's back there. But um, I guess there are, Worst things to be known for, <laughs> eating too much celery.
0: <laughs> Jim, that's a funny place to leave it, but uh, but I think we're going to leave it there. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, like I say, over six or eight months, we've worked together. You've become a good friend and a, and a fantastic colleague. And I couldn't thank you enough for being the first guest uh, on the first episode of Molecular Moments. We'll have you back sometime down the road as we, uh, as we see things evolve in the industry. And, and we've got new and interesting things to discuss. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed it. You're also a great colleague. This has been a great nine months so far of us working together. Uh, I'm excited to be part of this and really excited to hear who the next guest is that you bring on. So looking forward to the next Molecular Moments.
0: Thank you for listening to the premier edition of Molecular Moments, powered by BioAgilitics. Subscribe to not miss an edition. In the next episode, Dr. Chad Briscoe will be speaking with award-winning scientist, Ph.D. Jen Zemo.